C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, the young lady Lucy and her friends are aboard the Dawn Treader, and they sail into this thick, dark, enchanted uh, mess. And in that, they find that their worst dreams are coming true. And so terrified and overwhelmed by fear, Lucy utters a desperate prayer, and she says to the great Lion King, Aslan, 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 if you have ever loved us, send us help now. In this moment of uttering this prayer, C.S. Lewis tells us, Lucy felt just a little, a very, very little bit better, even though the darkness did not lift. And in that moment, she saw a, a light ahead of them, and we're told that as she saw that light, at first it looked like a cross, and then it looked like an airplane. Then it looked like a kite, and at last, whirling of wings, it was right overhead and was an albatross. It called out in a strong, sweet voice what seemed to be words that no one understood. And then it spread its wings and rose and began to fly slowly ahead, bearing a little starboard. And as the ships steered into what was the dawning light ahead of them, we're told that no one except Lucy knew that as it circled above them, it had whispered to her, courage, dear heart. I love that phrase, courage, dear heart. And I love this scene from the voyage of the Dawn Treader because it accurately reflects what I think some of us feel sometimes when we find ourselves in a world of thick darkness, when we find ourselves uttering prayers, saying, Lord, help, send help now when we find ourselves in a place where we desperately need to hear comforting and reassuring words telling us courage, dear, dear hearts. And so I think as we take a look at the scriptures this day, we're going to see through two passages that are related in Revelation, a voice coming to us saying to us, courage, dear hearts. We're going to look at a passage in the book of Revelation that talks about God's plan that is at work even when we can't see it. And then we're going to look at a passage where it talks about the renewal of all things. And so we're going to simply call our study today, Lament and the Longing for Heaven. And let me just give you a quick review of where we've been in the past few weeks. In the first week, we looked at the story of Job. The story that Job tells us about the suffering of Job that was due to no fault of his own. But through this suffering, he had a deeper encounter with God and came away with a new understanding of both who he was and his mysterious plan that is at work. And during this, we saw that suffering is not meaningless, as some worldviews might teach. And it's not karma kicking in. It's simply the effect sometimes of living in a world where we don't understand everything that is going on behind the scenes or understand a greater plan that is at work. But nevertheless, we're told that there is that plan. And then in week number two, we stole a title from this line from Fontaine and Les Mis, where she said there was a time and then it all went wrong. And we looked at how the scriptures invite us into a four-part understanding of the gospel in which God partnered with humanity giving them authority and honor, crowning them with the ability to rule this world in partnership with God. But as the story goes, they rebel against the king and decide to pursue wisdom and right and wrong on their own terms. And so because this world's fate was tied into the fate of humanity, this world became cursed. And from that, there are all sorts of crazy things that go wrong in that. But as the scriptures continue and the story of Jesus unfolds, we're brought to Jesus coming in the flesh 
and how he rescues us from our sin, but also he sets the trajectory for the restoration of all things. And then last week, we looked at those beautiful words of the scriptures in which we're told that Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He approached the tomb both with tears on his face and rage in his voice as he called out, Lazarus, come out. And in a moment (laughs) that stunned everyone, Jesus robbed death of Lazarus as Lazarus came back. And so we saw in that episode, as we're told by philosopher Peter Kraft, that Jesus is the tears of God. We're meant to see in Jesus, in those tears on his face, the tears of God as he enters into the pain and suffering of this world. But also in that episode, we learned that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And we're told that if we believe in him, that we too will live. So that's where we've come so far in our study together. And so today it brings us to the book of Revelation. We're going from the very beginning of the scriptures to the very end. And we're going to look at two passages in particular. The first one shows Jesus, this great lion-like person in the form of a lamb who was slain, breaking seals on a scroll of judgment. And we come to this place in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, where he breaks the fifth seal. And this is what we're told. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And so what's interesting about this passage is the Apostle John, one of the the dear close friends of Jesus, is given a vision into the heavenlies, seeing history work itself out. He sees souls that have been slain. These are followers of Jesus, and they had been killed because they preached the gospel of Jesus and the witness that they had borne to the world. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, how long? before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Here are these souls before God in heaven, crying out to him, knowing that this world still has not been set right. Justice still has not been served. And they cry out, how long? And in doing so, uttering this prayer, which is woven throughout the scriptures, and especially concentrated for us in the book of Psalms, this lament This cry of the heart that things are not right the way that they are. And so when we join in saying, how long, O Lord, we're joining in prayers that people have prayed uh, for time immemorial. People crying out for understanding, wanting things to be different. And that's because I think, my friends, all of us are, as Randy Alcorn said in this book called Happiness, homesick for Eden. We know the ways in which this world has gone wrong. And we long for it to be different because we know the way this world could be right. We have these echoes, these these perhaps unknown memories of a time when everything was right. The paradise in which God had set humanity originally. And so these souls, having suffered in this world, cry out, how long? And then we're told in verse 11, then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is a fascinating passage. They cry out how long and they're told to wait just a little longer. How much longer? Until the number of their brothers and sisters who are to be killed just like they are is fulfilled. 
And you look at this and you say, wait a minute, what's going on here? There's something at work here, and there's a plan at work, and it seems to encompass even the worst evil that people can perpetrate on one another, the killing of others. And in this context here, the killing of followers of Jesus. And the scripture tells us just this very truth, that God is working all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, after the counsel of his own will. For example, listen to the Apostle Peter. I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Speaking about Christ. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. How many things? Not just some things. Not 50% of the things. All things according to the counsel of his will. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And those bad things even encompass the death of Jesus himself. If there was ever an innocent person who suffered unjustly, it was Christ. The most loving person, the most beautiful person who has ever lived, was brutally tortured and nailed to a Roman cross. And we're told that even this fit into the perfect plan of God. For example, Peter, the apostle, stood up after the resurrection of Jesus in the very city of Jerusalem where they killed Jesus and said this, Jesus of Nazareth, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We're told that there's two things going on here. There's the actions of evil, of evil people, of evil powers conspiring to put Jesus to death. And there's also the plan of God working itself out exactly as it has been laid out. Peter continued and said, God raised them up, loosening the pains of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Even the bad things of this world and evil things work out according to the purpose of God. I love what N.T. Wright said in his book, Surprised by Hope. He said the central Christian affirmation is that what the creator has done in Jesus Christ and supremely in his resurrection is what he intends to do for the whole world. Even though Jesus suffered and he experienced sorrow, he was resurrected, brought into a new state. He was glorified. And what God did for Jesus is what God will do for this entire world. And that sets us up for looking at the very end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, in which we're told about a renewed creation. This is what it says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. A fascinating picture here of this vision that John the Apostle is given. He says he saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. He's intentionally using the wording of death here. This creation passes away. There's a new one that rises in its place. And it says here the sea was no more. For those of us who love the ocean and beaches, we're thinking, well, that's not so great. But in the scriptures, the sea, particularly in the book of Revelation, but throughout many of the prophets, the sea is the symbol of chaos. And so when it tells us that the sea was no more, it's simply telling us that the chaos, and specifically the chaos of evil, is no more. And so we're told about this 
new heaven and new earth. Have you seen this before? Have you thought very deeply about this before? This is what Jesus talked about when he walked the face of the earth. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. He, he refers here to what he described as the renewal of all things. A fascinating language Jesus used here. If we can just geek out on the Greek language just a bit, there's this Greek word that puts together two words. One of them means again, and one of them means beginning. A beginning again, and it's interesting as you look at different translations of this word, you find them saying different things. For example, the New American Standard Bible translates it as in the regeneration. The ISV translates it as in the new creation. The ESV, in the new world. The New Living Translation, when the world is made new. And in the message, a paraphrase, in the recreation of the world. Jesus is speaking about a time in the future when this creation that you and I inhabit will die and be resurrected, when it will be renewed, when it will be recreated. And so some of us probably are thinking, wait a minute, my vision of heaven is floating around on clouds and playing harps. Right? This is everywhere in our culture, and many of us have unconsciously adopted this as our way of thinking about the future. But that's because so many people only know a part of the story. They, they know about the fall, the rebellion of humanity, and the curse that came in the wake, and they know about how Jesus rescues us from our sin. And so the idea becomes in our thinking... What he does is he rescues us out of this world into a disembodied state in which we will exist forever, floating on clouds or, or doing whatever disembodied spirits do. But that's not the whole story. As we've already covered in our series together, the story began with a creation that God called very, very good. And it ends with a restored creation or a renewed creation or a resurrected creation. And so the heart of it, Jesus dying for us and rescuing us from our sins, is meant to be put in the context of the renewal of all things. I like what J. Richard Middleton said in his book, A New Heaven and New Earth. He said, this holistic vision of God's intent to renew or redeem creation is perhaps the Bible's best kept secret. And it's actually not a secret. It's there on the pages for us to see if we have eyes to see it. This is exactly what God has been after since the fall, since that fateful day when the earth and its fate followed in the footsteps of humanity and its fate and has been groaning ever since. And so Revelation tells us not only about a new creation, a new world, but it tells us about a world reconciled with God. And this is what he, John the Apostle saw. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This vision of what happens at the very end is not a vision of all of us wholesale leaving this earth and going and embodying a spiritual place called heaven. But it's a vision of the new Jerusalem, heaven coming down out of heaven, out of God's space, and reuniting to this earth. And that's the way things were originally. In the Garden of Eden, God's space and human space was connected. It overlapped. The two together were one. And with the fall, those were broken apart. And yet we're told at the end, this new Jerusalem, God's space, comes down and it unites again with our space. 
This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, For in him, speaking of Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. Or again in the book of Ephesians, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is God's plan for this world that is in a mess to be eventually restored and rehealed and heaven and earth being one. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a desire for God's will to be fleshed out here. And as we live following Jesus, however imperfectly, we begin the answer to that prayer, which will come in all its fullness when heaven descends and earth and heaven are once again united. T. Desmond Alexander in his book, The City of God and the Goal of Creation, said, The New Jerusalem is a fitting climax to the entire biblical story. New Jerusalem brings to completion what God intended when he first created the earth. So that's the picture of what is coming. And we're told in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This has been God's desire from the very beginning. In the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and woven throughout the entire story of the scriptures, ending in the book of Revelation, is this promise of God being to his people the God of creation, the God of redemption, and his people being his redeemed and restored people. And it's a beautiful picture here. And so we're also given in this passage of Revelation a world freed from suffering. And these are verses which we've referenced before and we love so much. We're told that God will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. My friends, what a beautiful picture this is of the God who cares intimately about you and about me. One day, reaching forth and wiping our tears from our eyes setting us in a new creation where we cannot be hurt anymore, where we won't be scared anymore, where all those scars that cause such deep pain in our lives will be completely healed. We'll see his face. This is what theologians call the, the beatific vision, literally the happy-making vision. When we see God face to face and he dries our tears and he heals our sorrows and our wounds, and he makes us whole and complete. Not as spirit beings disconnected from bodies, but in resurrected, glorious bodies, just like Jesus. That's why the New England minister, Jonathan Edwards, said, our bad things turn out for good. Our good things can never be lost. And the best things are yet to come. My friends, as we inhabit this world, where sometimes nightmares come true, where we whisper desperate prayers, Lord, help, send help, where we long for a reassuring voice, we are given a voice to listen to, telling us, courage, dear hearts, the resurrection is coming, 
The renewal of all things is coming. Hang in there. Hang in there. This book of Revelation also gives us a picture of a world with God and Christ at the center. Verse 5 tells us, He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Here we see Jesus with the Father saying together in one voice from the throne, I am making all things new. And this is meant to be a promise for us to sink our teeth into, to take to the bank. That's why it says, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. How true are they? They're as true as Jesus rising again from the dead. And so in hope, we long for that day. Two points of application, my friends. Let's learn the lost language of lament. We saw in the passage from Revelation 6, the saints saying, how long, O Lord? How long, sovereign God? And in that prayer, we're meant to find an echo of our own heart's cry. How long, O God? We're meant to whisper those desperate prayers, Lord, send help. And my friends, the best training ground for this is the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is filled with language that helps us pray to God. To cry out to God, God, I don't understand. Lord, where are you? I'm hurting. And these books, these prayers in the book of Psalms uh, help us with uh, the heart's cry, the groaning that you and I have difficulty putting words to. And so, my friends, we need to learn to not only only learn the lost language of lament, but to actually use it. To have it to become something that wells up within us whenever we see the news and it drives us crazy, scratches our head, or makes us scratch our head and wonder what in the world is going on. You see, my friends, lament aligns our heart with God's intent. If you can remember a simple phrase like that, lament aligns our heart with God's intent. It will help us to understand how we can cry out. Because God's original intentions for creation were very, very good. And what he intends to do at the renewal of all things are so far beyond description that it would blow our minds if we were told about it now. So we're just given little morsels to kind of tease out our hunger and drive for that. I love what Charles Spurgeon, the Victorian English Baptist minister, said. He said, God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken. And when you cannot trace his hand, You can trust his heart. And that's what God is calling you and I to do, to trust him, to believe that he is good, even in the midst of a world of pain. And that trust is rooted in the person of Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And so as Lennox says in that book that we're recommending for you, a Christian then is not a person who has solved the problem of suffering but one who has come to love and trust the God who has suffered for them. And so lament helps us, like a a homing beacon, attach ourselves to this God who loves us, who in Jesus wept for us, and who will one day set everything to right. And so my friends, the second point of application is simply this. Let us deepen our longing for heaven on earth. Let us deepen our longing for the renewal of all things, the resurrection of this world, for everything to be set right. 
This is what the early followers of Jesus urged us to do. For example, the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 said, In keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. My friends, are you looking forward to that? Do you find that to be an anchor for your soul in a weary, weary world? A world where righteousness dwells. What does that mean? Basically, everything is the way it's supposed to be. Righteousness is a word that, at its heart, deals with right relationships. Our relationship with God will be completely restored. It will be right. Our relationship with our own being will be restored. It will be right. Our relationship with one another will be restored, and it will be right. And our relationship with this creation will at last be restored and set right. No more sickness, no more death, no more pandemic. So my friends, let us learn how to deepen our hope in that day. Just over, I guess, three summers ago after we began Mercy Hill Church, I referenced an essay written by Samuel Storms called Joy's Eternal Increase. And in it, he was looking at the theology of of Jonathan Edwards, who we quoted just a moment ago, his theology of heaven. And he, he took something that Edwards said and used it as a launching pad. And he uses the English language in so many different ways to help us get our minds around what it might be like on that last day. And so this is what he said. He said, think of the implications of what is being said. When we get to heaven, or we might put it this way, when heaven and earth become one again and it's united, there will be, said Edwards, nothing which shall offend the most delicate eye. In other words, nothing that is abrasive, irritating, agitating, or hurtful. Nothing harmful, hateful, upsetting, or unkind. Nothing sad, bad, or mad. Nothing harsh, impatient, ungrateful, or unworthy. Nothing weak, or sick, or broken, or foolish. Nothing deformed, degenerate, depraved, or disgusting. Nothing polluted, pathetic, poor, or putrid. Nothing dark, dismal, dismaying, or degrading. Nothing blameworthy, blemished, blasphemous, or blighted. Nothing faulty, faithless, frail, or fading. Nothing grotesque or grievous, hideous or insidious. Nothing illicit or illegal, lascivious or lustful. Nothing marred and mutilated, misaligned or misinformed. Nothing nasty or naughty, offensive or odious. Nothing rancid or rude. Soiled or spoiled, nothing tawdry or tainted, tasteless or tempting, nothing vile or vicious, wasteful or wanton. Wherever you turn your eyes, you will see nothing but glory and grandeur, beauty and brightness, purity and perfection and splendor and satisfaction and sweetness and salvation and majesty and marvel and holiness and happiness. We will see only all that is adorable and affectionate, beautiful and bright, brilliant and bountiful, delightful and delicious, delectable and dazzling, elegant and exciting, fascinating and fruitful, glorious and grand, gracious and good, holy and happy, healthy and whole, joyful and jubilant, lovely and luscious, majestic and marvelous, opulent and overwhelming, 
radiant and resplendent, splendid and sublime, sweet and savoring, tender and tasteful, euphoric and unified. Won't that be something, my friends? Can you taste it? Can you long for it? Does that not stir within you the world that you've always wanted? I love the song that we sing sometimes here. A love that will not let me go. And in it, it has this line, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. Here's that great hope of that morning, the dawning of that day, that we escape this thick, enchanted darkness. And the dawn arises with healing in its wings and tears will be no more. And so my friends, Jesus says to us, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, take heart. I have overcome the world. And he also says this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. My friends, hear the voice of your Lord and Savior crying out to you and saying, hang in there. Courage, dear hearts. I know the night is long. I know that that this lasts longer than you thought it would. You're frustrated and the pain and suffering are deep. But take courage. I have overcome this world. And the day is coming when mourn will tearless be.